Welcome to the Health Deli, your local stop for a fresh take on community health topics. Come on in, grab a number, and let the guys behind the counter, Mark, Ben, and Mike, tell you about today's specials. Well, good day, and welcome back to the deli. Uh, we got all the, the boys back in town, and... Yeah. Whoop, whoop. I'm, I'm one of the boys. I I'm as well. I <laughs> as well. <laughs> Did he, he just whoop, whooped. Yeah, that's fine. Is he's, it? he's actually excited to be here. <laughs> oh, we're wow. starting this episode out strong. So. <laughs> and so, yeah, we are here in the Health Deli Studios uh, in beautiful Big Rapids, Michigan, in the uh, television and digital media production uh, mm-hmm. area. And this is my first time here. I'm surprised they let us back in after you two were here alone. Well, we, it, was a, it was a soft start. They didn't want to let you back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Ben and I came in, did their couple episodes here mm-hmm. and uh, then they said all right yeah, yeah we'll show, let mike in yeah we showed him that we wouldn't run amok you know we we talked you up really well mike so mm-hmm. yep the security is a little lightened now yep. hey andrew how are you doing <laughs> over there in the beverage like, oh you're eating your dots now huh yeah doing great they're all gone no microphone <laughs> okay <laughs> and uh we, we got lawrence over here helping us as well today hey lawrence how you doing buddy oh man we're yeah, we're, we're, doing we're good. well supported here mm-hmm. yes, we are. um so wow season three uh, still, I can't believe that every day I wake up and I go season three. Wow. My wife hasn't pulled us from the air. Yeah. It's only a matter of time though. Yeah. I know. Really? She keeps threatening. <laughs> um, but with that, you know, so what, have, what's been going on? What did I miss? What are you guys working on? So I've been working on an episode that I've been teasing. It seems like forever about seasonal mm-hmm. affective disorder. So, uh, you know, winter is, it will be soon upon us. Um, so I'm working on an episode kind of how to, how to recognize and maybe prevent, treat, seasonal affective disorder or sad. Yeah. I like that a lot. I was actually thinking about also doing an episode about that, but if you're already doing it, I'll oh, let you have um, it. We can, we can work together. I would, a tandem episode. I, w- I would like to see a, an episode off. Maybe we're like, you guys challenge each other to a duel. Uh, and the winner does the yeah. episode or something like that. It, it could be too. It doesn't have to be to the death. Cause that just seems so permanent, but it could uh, be true, it, but it could be. Yeah. We could do that. <laughs> Well, yeah, that actually is a good idea. Maybe we could do like a debate style episode where one person's the pro side, one person's the con side for something that's like a kind of interesting topic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, maybe we can talk about that. The episode I'm actually working on right now is actually about air pollution. So like, how does that actually affect our health? Um, what can you do about it? You know, what are the long-term effects of it? And so, yeah, might be something that's interesting to dive into. Great. Well, sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, um, I've got a lot to talk about this season. There's so many weird things going on in the world, uh, especially related to infectious diseases. Um, there's been domestic cases of malaria yeah, in the United that. States. Uh, and so I would like to do something on like mosquito borne illnesses. And there's also been, uh, cases of leprosy now being diagnosed in the United States. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to, you know, you know, last season it was Mike's getting old. Let's talk about his prostate season. <laughs> uh, this mm-hmm. year it's Mike's getting old and has developed this disease called Meniere's disease, um, which Excuse is some vertical. <laughs> so, so we've officially moved on from your prostate. Oh yeah, I'm 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 done updating my prostate now. We're pretty much at a stable place there for the prostate. All right. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna. Sh- I've shown you all. I'm gonna show you with that. <laughs> and um, we're gonna move no on then uh, to talking about hearing loss and vertigo. Right. Um, so yeah, that should be interesting. Hell, either that or very painful, one or the other. But why not both? It, yeah, you would like that. <laughs> but today, being very serious, we've got a really special guest with us today. We're going to talk about breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to talk about this today from a medical perspective because 
you know, the treatment of breast cancer and stuff like that, those are kind of regimens that are decided upon by doctors and guidelines and stuff like that. But what I want to do is focus on the individual and hear about, you know, what it's like to go through uh, a battle with breast cancer. And today we're pleased to be joined by a colleague and a breast cancer survivor, um, Susan Thrush. And Susan, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Mike, thanks for having me. Thanks for asking me to do this. I feel very strongly that the more stories, uh, people's stories that, you know, other people hear, the less, um, the more you know what to expect Mm -hmm. or what could expect, because I think everybody's journey with cancer is very different Mm because there's so many different options for treatment, depending on very specific things in uh, related to someone's cancer. But there are a lot of things I knew people, you know, I didn't know that that could happen or this could happen. So I think mm-hmm. that the more stories that people can share, the more informed people become about what it might be like to have cancer. So thank you for having me. Yeah. And um, I know that when you and I were talking and I first shared the the script with you, you were kind of taken back, uh, you know, by, you know, one of the statements that I just used to introduce you as a breast cancer survivor. I was, that was the first time anyone had called me, um, a survivor. And I, I just finished treatments really, uh, at the end of August. And in fact, I'm, I'm still recovering in some degree of some of the radiation treatments. And so it's a sudden sort of switch. You, you takes a while to get used to being a patient Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you're a survivor and it doesn't feel real to me yet, to be perfectly honest, because it's at the end of everything, it wasn't like, okay, so now we're going to test everything and we see nothing. There's no cancer anywhere. You're good to go. You know, kind of a thing. It's like, well, we think we did all we did to remove it all and kill it all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we'll find out how that goes. Yeah. Well, so it, you know, I feel like every time if it doesn't, you know, return, then I'll feel more like a survivor. But right now it's sort of like, technically, I guess I am, but I'm not sure. Too, <laughs> too fresh at the moment, you know, yeah. with all that. Before we, you know, hear more about your your journey and your battle, I think it's important for, you know, the listeners just to get an idea of breast cancer. Um, and so I've got, you know, the numbers uh, that I just want to go over. And each year in the United States, there's almost 250 million uh, cases of breast cancer diagnosed in women. However, breast cancer is not just um, a disease found in women. Every year, there's about 2,100 cases that are diagnosed in men. Uh the number in women, it makes this the second most common cancer among women and accounts for about 30% of all new cases of cancer uh, in women every year. And the average risk in the United States for a woman to develop breast cancer in her life is about 13%. So this means there's about a one in eight chance that she's going to develop breast cancer. Um, and that means that there's a uh, seven in eight chance she will never have the disease. So even though you know, we talk about these numbers and we talk about how common it is, you know, still there's going to be a good chunk of people that are not going to develop the disease. Yeah. When you put those in perspective, we all know eight women. I mean, that is, you know, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, and chances are one of them in their lifetime will will develop it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in addition to being uh, one of the most common causes of cancer, it's also the second leading cause of death, cancer death in women. And there's a chance that, you know, about one in 39 uh, chance that a woman will die from breast cancer, about 2.5%. And so that's, you know, a real number. Uh, Fortunately, the rates of death 
uh, from death uh, breast cancer have been decreasing since uh, the early 1990s. And this decrease in, decrease in the rate of deaths is likely to be caused by increased screening mm-hmm. and that we're finding breast cancer earlier. There's an increased awareness, uh, awareness of breast cancer, and there's also better treatments uh, for breast cancer. In terms of you know who's at risk or when they're going to get it, the median age at diagnosis of breast cancer is slightly younger among black women uh, than white women, and, and black women unfortunately have the highest death rates from bre- uh, breast cancer. Um, and you know, continuing that you know disparity in health um, at every age, black women are more likely to die from breast cancer than any other race or ethnic group. So I, you know, we always talk about social determinants of health and other things that you know predict outcome. And so this is really important to to be aware, you know, for your patients and for individuals. Mm-hmm. When we talk about breast cancer, we just talk about it like, oh, breast cancer is just breast cancer, and that that's kind of it. But we have to understand that there's uh, several different types of breast cancer, and the type is determined by the specific types of cells in the breast uh, that become cancerous. Um, the first type of breast cancer is ductal carcinoma in situ, or DCIS. And this is a non-invasive uh, type of cancer where abnormal cells are found in the breast milk duct. Uh, these cells typically do not spread outside the ducts into the surrounding tissues. And this is a, a very early cancer and is highly treatable. Uh, however, if it is left untreated, uh, it might spread to surrounding tissues. So, so Mike, what does in situ mean then, like that phrasing? Yeah, so that's a sciencey word that just means in the original place. Hmm. So when it's ductal uh, carcinoma in situ, it means it's just found in the, the ducts. Okay, it hasn't like spread elsewhere essentially? Correct. Okay. And so the next type of cancer that or classification is invasive ductal carcinoma. And this is an invasive cancer where the abnormal cells that started forming in the milk ducts spread beyond those into the other parts of the body. Um, and this type of cancer uh, is the most uh, common type of breast cancer and makes up nearly 70, 80% of all breast cancer diagnoses. Um, and this is, you know, oddly enough, it's also the type of breast cancer that mostly affects men. Hmm. Interesting. And so once the cancer is kind of like spread around, does that make it more serious or like harder to treat or both then? Um, in general, yes, both. Um, hmm. Because once it's not localized, uh, it's more difficult to, you know, do a surgical resection, uh, focus radiation or whatnot. So when it spreads, you don't always know where it goes to. Mm. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about nodes and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, in general, the further it spreads, the worse things are. Okay. The la- or the second to last type of um, breast cancer is uh, lobular carcinoma, again, in situ. Uh, and this is actually uh, not breast cancer. It's just a condition where abnormal cells are found in the lobules of the breast. Uh, and these cells have not spread outside of these uh, lobules into surrounding tissue. And again, it's a highly treatable uh, form of cancer, breast cancer, and it seldomly becomes invasive. Mm. However, having this uh, lobular uh, carcinoma in situ uh, in one breast does increase your risk of developing breast cancer in either breast. So it could mm. be used to you know, help women be on the lookout. Okay. And then we've got this invasive lobular cancer is an invasive breast cancer that begins in the lobules or the milk glands and spreads to the surrounding tissues. Um, this is the second most type, common type of breast cancer. And over 10% of invasive breast cancers you know, are the invasive lobular type. 
And though mammograms are helpful and important, they're less likely to detect the invasive globular breast cancer than the other types of breast cancer. Um, and th this cancer doesn't always appear clearly on mammograms. Instead, you need to do an MRI or a magnetic, magnetic resonance imaging, which is a more sophisticated technique to look for changes in the body. So does that mean everyone should be getting an MRI then, if this is a potential consideration? I guess you'll probably get into testing later. But. Yeah, we'll get into testing, but mm -hmm. you know, there's typically pathways we follow to make best use of our resources. And an MRI, for those of you that have not had an MRI, is not necessarily a happy thing. <laughs> uh, they put you in a tube. Yeah. You have to, you know, it's barely bigger than you. So if you're claustrophobic, not good. And they're also very expensive. And mm -hmm. so it does not make sense to, you know, jump right to an MRI for everybody. Makes sense. So let's talk about risks. Who is at risk for getting breast cancer? And there are a number of factors, some that are non-modifiable, so they can't change, and some that we can change. Um, there's a relatively long list of non-modifiable risk factors. One is age. And, you know, the risk for getting breast cancer increases with age, and most breast cancers are diagnosed after the age of 50. Hmm. There's also genetic mutations. So when we talk about, you know, personalized medicine and stuff like that, looking at different genes, uh, women who inherited certain mutations in genes called BRCA8-1 and BRCA8-2 are at higher risk for breast and ovarian cancer. And these are screens that can be done. Uh, reproductive history. Uh, if you, uh, a woman started her menstrual cycles before the age of 12 uh, and started menopause after the age of 55, in these cases, women are exposed to hormones in the body for longer periods of time. And uh, this then does increase their risk of getting breast cancer. Having dense breasts uh, means you have more connective tissue um, and less fatty tissue, and this can be a risk factor. If you have a personal history of breast cancer or certain non-cancerous breast diseases, uh, you're more likely to get breast cancer a second time. If you have a family history of breast or ovarian cancer, uh, that puts you at increased risk. If you have previous treatment using radiation therapy, uh, so women who have radiation therapy you know, of the chest or breast, uh, for instance, if they had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or something like that, before the age of 30 have a higher risk of getting breast cancer later in life. And lastly, uh, you know, exposure to the drug uh, diethyl stilbestrol or DES, um, this was a medication that was given to some women um, between 1940 and 1971 to prevent miscarriages, and this can put individuals at risk. Hmm. Those are things you can't do anything about. Now, the ones you can do things about, the modifiable, are you know, try to be more physically active. Um, being overweight or having obesity after menopause is a risk factor. If you're taking hormone replacement therapy, uh, that's a risk factor. Uh, if you have your first pregnancy after the age of 30, not breastfeeding and never having a full-term pregnancy, can it increase your risk for breast cancer? Hmm. I don't know necessarily that you can go back and have kids at some point in time. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, that is, you know, interpret that as yeah, you will. I was about to say, I don't know if that, some of that stuff is modifiable, but <laughs> I'm not classifying these. I'm just so, reading the list out there. To clarify that though, not breastfeeding would increase your risk. Correct. Okay. Hmm. And then drinking alcohol. There's studies that show that women's for bre uh, risk for breast cancer increases uh, the more alcohol they drink. Hmm. And so, Ben, you brought up the point about screenings. Yeah. And this is a big thing because, you know, I had mentioned that mortality from 
breast cancer has decreased because we've you know started looking for it more. And one of the uh, most widely used ways to screen for breast cancer is through mammograms. And you know, Susan and I were talking, you know, before, and this is not always necessarily clear in terms of who should be screened, when you should be screened, and, and stuff like that, because there's two groups uh, that have made comments on using mammograms for screen, screening. One is the American Cancer Society, and the other is the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. Um, and sometimes those two groups don't necessarily you mean, agree. You mean there's mm-hmm. some controversy in medicine? It just It's not just like black and white? And mm-hmm. Yeah, no black weird. and white. There's a whole that's lot weird. of unhappy in between. Uh, and that also kind of reminds me of when we were talking about prostate health too. Wasn't that kind of similar where there wasn't a clear guidance of like, these people definitely should be tested. These ones shouldn't. It seems, yeah. if, do we just not know what to do with cancer? I guess well, is my it, question. Then. Because sometimes you, you have to look at the tests and what's being used and there's always a risk for overdiagnosis. Mm-hmm. And if you say you have somebody who has cancer and they really don't, you might put those individuals at risk for some of the treatments or follow-ups that can be highly invasive and highly toxic. Mm-hmm. And so there's a trade-off. And so according to the American Cancer Society, women between the age of 40 and 44 have the option to start screening with a mammogram every year. They recommend that women 45 to 54 should get mammograms every year. Women 55 and older, they recommend can switch to mammograms every other year or they can choose to continue yearly mammograms. Um, but this can continue as long as the woman is in good health and expected to live at least 10 more years. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, they put that caveat on there with the life expectation because, again, sometimes people die with cancers rather than from cancers. Mm-hmm. And then all women, uh, they say, should understand what to expect when getting a mammogram uh, and what the test can and cannot do. Now, the CDC and the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, on the other hand, currently recommends that women who are 50 to 74 years of age and are at an average risk for breast cancer get mammograms every two years. So the mm. difference here being you go from every year screening to every other year, and that women who are 40 to 49-year-olds should talk to their doctors about when to start off and get a mammogram, and they should weigh the risks and benefits uh, of whether or not to start getting mammograms before the age of 50. Mm. Whereas again, um, you know, for the American Cancer Society, you know, they talk about starting at 40 years of age. Yeah, and they're saying get one every year from 45 to 54. Right. So yeah, that's very different recommendations for sure. Right. And so it can be confusing, you know, and I remember when those U.S. Preventative Services Task Force recommendations came out, oh my gosh, there was a lot of debate. Uh, there was a lot of anger uh, from breast cancer survivors and breast cancer, you know, support groups. Um, but us services, preventative services task force, they make recommendations theoretically that balance the evidence along with the cost benefit of things. Okay. And so can Mike or maybe Susan or maybe both talk about like, what is a mammogram? Like what is, what do you expect when you get that kind of test? I've never had one personally, so. So I'm going to let Susan it or you not. Know, say that, but I will <laughs> say I have had a mammogram. Okay. Um, because they did screen me for breast cancer at one point in time, but um, I'll let Susan go ahead and, you know, talk about maybe more of the traditional experience. <laughs> I think that um, how men and women would experience breast cancer might be a little bit different just because it's different anatomy looking, you know, yeah. size, so it's different. Um, 
it's not a very pleasant experience. It's not terribly unpleasant either. Mm. But um, basically, they're my understanding is, and maybe I'm not using the completely correct terms, but it's more or less an X-ray of you know the breast tissue. And to be able to do that, they need to press um, both sides of a woman's breast to fairly as flat as it can go and as tight as it can go so mm. that everything is, I guess, visible. I don't know why it has to be that way, but that's what they need to do. And so, you know, you kind of lean into a, a machine um, that you literally just put your breast up on like a little table and then they put a mm. um, another piece of plastic sort of comes down and, and gets it smashed into the right position, just like an x-ray, you put your leg in the right position to get the x-ray of the bone. And then mm -hmm. they take the mammogram. It only takes a couple seconds, just like, you know, an x-ray. Um, and then they do the other side. And then usually within a few hours, you actually have the results. So. And, and Susan, you, terrible, you, use, you use the term right. smashed. And that's what I re remember, you know, when I was doing it. So I've got, um, you know, one side of my chest is enlarged and they think that there's a bunch of scar tissue. I played soccer growing up mm -hmm. and they think that eventually that because I did a lot of chest balls and stuff like that, there was repeated trauma built up and they were concerned, uh, when I was in college that I might have breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I remember standing on my tiptoes, you know, one of the little machines and them just squishing the heck out of my chest, mm -hmm. uh, to do this. So yeah, when you said smashed, uh, yeah, that was, that was pretty, uh, it's accurate. pretty smashed. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't last long, but it is no. pretty smashed. Yeah. So that, I mean, that sounds not very pleasant, but at least doesn't sound painful. Like not anything you need to be no, like it's scared just more, of. It's you're... really more uncomfortable. Okay. I mean, it's, you know, it doesn't bruise you or anything like that. You'd think it might, cause mm -hmm. it's, <laughs> but it doesn't. Well, okay. Well, so, that's good. So let's, let's start Susan talking about you. Be and before we get into that. Yes, sir. Andrew's waving me down, saying that we should take a, a pause for the oh, healthy minute. We got the healthy minute. Hang on. So, <laughs> um, so let's pause for the healthy minute brought to you by the winery at Young Farms. Today's healthy minute is get your vaccines. Getting a vaccine is like exercise for your immune system. The CDC currently recommends all adults get a flu shot and a COVID-19 booster annually. Tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis is recommended every 10 years for adults. And everyone over the age of 50 should also get a shingles vaccine series. Some adults with risk factors and everyone over the age of 65 should also be vaccinated for pneumococcal pneumonia. An RSV vaccine, which you may have heard about here on the Health Deli, is now available for those over the age of 65. Does this sound confusing? Well, it can be. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist about which vaccines are right for you. Oftentimes, the cost is fully covered by your insurance. That was the Healthy Minute, brought to you by the Winery at Young Farms in Macosta, Michigan. Please visit www.thewineryatyoungfarms.com for more information. Now, back to the health deli. You're getting better at those, Mark. Oh, yeah, that, that rocked. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah, that was, that was really good. The only, thing that I will, the only thing I will say is they discourage people from saying COVID booster. Oh, I'm now, sorry. So now Correct. they have a yearly, so they're calling this one the COVID 2023-24 vaccine mm. you know and i should have asked you are we like still using the word COVID 19 yes or is it now 23 nope it's COVID 19 because yeah, it originated in the year 2019 okay yeah, yeah. that's yeah. why i have you guys on the show you know you that's why we're on mark's show it's, right. <laughs> that's right thank, <laughs> thank you babe. thank you mark <laughs> thank you all right well let's turn right, this let's back, back to susan because your guys head at least mark's head is growing you know even larger <laughs> than it is and his headphones aren't going to fit in a minute here um, but Susan, we, we were talking about, you know, mammograms and, and diagnosing breast cancer. Can you tell us 
how you were diagnosed with breast cancer. Was this like on a routine screening? Did you have some inkling something was wrong? You know, what happened for you? Sure, Mike. Excellent. Mine was an absolute routine mammogram that I had put off. Um, I tried to do them annually because I was, my doctor was of the camp of doing them once a year and um, life gets in the way and you push it off or you, you know, I don't have time to do that right now. I'll schedule that later. And I know, I know a lot of women who do that because again, it's not the most pleasant experience. And Mm -hmm. for me, you know, I had had several that were completely negative and I'm sort of thinking, okay, I can, it's fine. I don't have a lot of risk factors, whatever, you know, so I put it off about five, five and a half months from when I was supposed to get it. And I went in to have it. And initially I think it was like eight or nine in the morning. And at around noon, I got a message on the, you know, chart in the apps for the hospitals and said, mammogram was normal. Okay, good. That's good. Mm-hmm. We'll get another one two hours later that said, you have a test result. And I thought, well, that's interesting because I already got my test results. And now it says, I think we should have an ultrasound, something that the uh, radiologist was didn't think was particularly important, called it normal. She second-guessed herself and decided to err on the side of caution and have me get an ultrasound. And an ultrasound is just a different way to image things in your body. It uses sound waves as opposed to um, uh, you know having the... Um, radioactivity, the x-rays going into the body. Radio waves. Radio, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, Susan, you had mentioned that, you know, you had lots of these in the past that had been negative. Did you ever think to yourself, okay, I've got risk factors for breast cancer. I'm at risk for breast cancer? No. In fact, it was very far from my thinking. And in that my grandfather on my mother's side had prostate cancer, but he didn't have it until he was almost 80 years old. And um, so he's more or less probably died with cancer than from it, um, as you were saying earlier. And there really wasn't cancer in my family um, at all. And so I was not at all thinking that this was really, you know, something that would happen to me, but I'm just going to do my due diligence and, you know, get these done because that's what they suggested. So I was really shocked. to, and I didn't think anything of it at first when they said, go get it ultrasounded because I thought, okay, she wasn't, didn't think it was anything. It's probably nothing. It's, you know, better that they're being cautious. And, uh, you know, when I had the ultrasound, they said, you know, it's, um, suspicious. So we're going to do a biopsy. And these were, this started moving very quickly. I had the mammogram on March 23rd and the morning of March 24th, I received a phone call from, uh, the Betty Ford Breast Cancer Center and asked me if I would be available today for an mm. ultrasound. And so I said, okay, it's fortunately I work very close. So I said, sure, we can make, make that happen. So I went over and had that. She said it was suspicious. I got a call two hours later asking me if I could have, um, could, could do a biopsy on Monday because that was a Thursday and then a Friday. And then on Monday, could I have a biopsy? Well, no, so, so, so wait said, a second with that. I mean, you're right. That went fast. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize how fast it was. I mean, so your first phone call was, Hey, all is cl- all is clear green light. And you're like, okay, that's what I expected. And then this started rolling. I mean, what was going through your mind at all this? Initially, how- not much initially, not much because I thought, okay, it's probably nothing. Cause she thought it was nothing originally when she looked at the x-rays or the mammograms, but I got a little bit more concerned. I had to go the whole weekend going, huh, I have to have a biopsy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes me a little bit more concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, so they did the biopsy and 
I got the results of the biopsy on Wednesday. That was a Monday. They called me on Wednesday morning, um, March 29th, and said that I had um, invasive ductal carcinoma. Oh, man. Mm. So, you know, two things there. Biopsy on Monday, have to wait till Wednesday. You know, again, were you still in the mindset this is probably nothing? Or at that point in time, are you getting a little anxious trying to want to get your test results? I was getting a bit anxious. I knew it would take a couple of days. So I was just trying to comfort myself with the fact that most of these are benign. Um, in fact, the person who did the biopsy, you know, they even said, and I probably shouldn't have done this in hindsight, but he was trying mm. to be very friendly and, and had a lot of experience in doing biopsies and said, you know, we do this because we don't know. So we're, you know, going to do the biopsy. But if I had to guess, I would say that it's probably not cancerous. Well, so it's a good thing we that, don't let them guess. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. This is why we don't guess. And he was very clear to say, you know, but he just wanted, I guess, maybe to put me at ease a little bit. So I, I had that thought in the back of my mind for the next two days that they didn't think it was cancerous. So it's probably not. So I was quite surprised that it well, actually came but, positive because I had convinced myself. And, and when you got the news, how did they convey that news to you? Did they call you into the office or did you, you know, just get a test message? Hey, you're positive. Uh, or, I mean, you know, what happened? Where were you when you got all I this? was at work. I was sitting at my desk and I got a phone call and I saw that it was from, you know, uh, Coral Health. And I, you know, answered it and she just um, really just came out and said it. I mean, you got to get that part out so you can get on to the other information mm. It's basically, you know, she said, you have breast cancer, you have a type called invasive ductal carcinoma. Um, and she said, don't be overly concerned about the word invasive. It doesn't mean that it's invaded your entire body. It's just moved from the milk duct out. It's in, invaded into your breast tissue, your other breast tissue. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and it just snowballed from there. I Well, before you snowballed and you got that, and you hear the word, you have cancer. What, I, I can't even imagine, I mean, you always think, well, I'll take that well, I'm very stoic and, hmm. you know, mm -hmm. just, I mean, what, what happened? I mean, you're at work first off and I, you know, you're, you know, relatively, you know, visible area and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, how, what, how, what, how did you take that? What were the, your emotions? I mean, I can't even imagine. Yeah, I I was I was really shocked because I did not expect that news. And so I was really quite taken back. Um and I just sat there and um Ann Kaiser uh and I had known each other for quite some time and she she knew that I was going through this and knew that I was um waiting for results. And I saw her kind of look over, you know, at me because I was just sitting there staring. And I waved her over and she came in and then I just cried. Um, and I, you know, I said, I can't believe it. You know, I have cancer. And so we just sat there for a few minutes and um, I said, you know, I'm just going to call my sister and see, you know, what happens next. I, you know, they were going to mm -hmm. call me back uh, to let me know more about what the next steps were. So I just, I, uh, I started to cry. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so you know, this, again, it's a lot to process. I mean, because we always believe that our risks for experiencing a disease or anything is always much less than it truly is. And so we always underestimate our own individual risks. So getting slapped in the face with reality uh, just really, you know, sets us back. Yeah. And that's coming back to the statistics that you said earlier, Mike, you said 
you know, 13% of people will experience it that, which, you know, is a decent amount, but that's pretty low, right? That's like less yeah. than 85% won't get it. Yeah. So yeah, but it can happen, right? Like on an individual level, right? it happens and now you have it, right? The statistics don't matter and at the, that point. And this was, you know, all occurred in what, Susan, less than a week? Less than a week. Less than a week. And, and so you Thursday went- to Wednesday, six days, which included the weekend. And of course, you know, the labs and things aren't doing anything on the weekend. So. Mm-hmm. And so then they say, you have cancer. How soon did it take them to start talking about what are we going to do? I mean, did, was that that same conversation or was there time where you had to sit there and think about, oh my gosh, I have cancer. And then, you know, a week later they call you in to talk about treatments or what? No, they actually don't let you sit very long. Um, that's probably for the best. She, she did ask me, she said, you don't have to make the decision now, but I need to ask you if you have a oncologist or a breast surgeon that you are familiar with, either from a family member, you know, a friend or something like that, that you would like to consult. Would you like to talk to your primary care physician first? Or we also offer a multi specialty team that will work together to organize your treatment. And so if you know which one you'd like to do, you can tell me, or you can, you know, let us know once you have a chance to think about what you want to do. And I immediately said, I want the multi-specialty team because I don't know any breast surgeons. I don't know any oncologists. How crazy is that? It's like, well, yeah, if you're a, you know, expert in this area, you can pick your own (laughs) treatments. Like, say what? Don't you know? I thought you were the expert. (laughs) You know, and I figure no offense against my primary care physician, but this is not in his wheelhouse necessarily either. So mm, it's right. like, you know, well, and, and, with the multi-specialty team. And, and it's crazy because there are options. I mean, you, you've alluded to that. You know, you could do surgery, chemotherapy, hormone therapy, biological therapy, radiation therapy, a whole bunch of different things. And you can use them alone in combination, mm-hmm. depending on a whole bunch of things. And so that can be overwhelming because each of them are associated with a certain level of success and a certain level of potential for risk. And so, Susan, for your case, you know, what did your team end up recommending and what did you go through? So I had my so this is March 29th still and um, April 3rd was my first visit with my team. And I was really, you know, first of all, I had no idea you get a breast nurse, you get a PT Mm-hmm. You get a radiation radiologist, you get an oncologist, a breast surgeon, a radiation oncologist, a social worker, and a oh um nurse navigator. So you had an entire team with you. That is amazing. I had an entire team. So they you come over, uh, you know, you they were very kind. They did a um teams visit so that my sister who lived in Virginia could come with me basically because Mm -hmm. there was such short notice there was no way she could get out here in time to come to this appointment with me so she came via teams um and you just sit down and one by one you meet each of these people they have already looked at all your medical records they have already had lengthy discussion about potential options for treatment and they have their recommendations and i was allowed to you know hear more than one idea in some ways and say, you know, what am I most comfortable with? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a couple of times we could go a couple of different ways. Um, So it's a, it's about, you break for lunch and then you come back. So it's pretty much all day. You get there at like eight in the morning or something. And so all day long, you stay in one place and they just keep coming to (laughs) you. Um, 
and going through one at a time, you know, everybody. So you're not meeting with the entire team at once. Okay. Each conversation was individual Okay. with the person that I was seeing at the time. And, and so I'm getting a flag here that, you know, we're rapidly running out of time and there's some other key things that I want to try to get to. But how did you feel during this whole process when you started getting your treatment, you know, physically, emotionally, how, what did, did that do to you? Um, physically, but, well, my treatment was surgery hmm. and, um, there were several different options of how to get the best margins, et cetera. So we had surgery and it was to be followed by, um, radiation. But when they did the surgery, they discovered that I also had a tumor in my lymph nodes and mm. that the tumor in my breast was a little bit larger than they had expected it to be. And so that meant chemo was now on the table. So we needed to find out if I was going to have chemo. So there was about almost a month. Um, they take the tissue samples and they send them out to a different lab that does an onco type DX score. And if you score a certain number or above, you get chemo or number and below, you don't. And that basically is the benefits of chemo are outweighed by the risks. Mm -hmm. If it's, you know, the score that says you should have chemo, it's, it's better for you. I was one point away from having chemo. So it was not recommended that I do that. But at this point now, it's a month after surgery. And within two weeks after two or three weeks after surgery, when things were healed, I was supposed to start radiation. Um, I had issues with the wound healing from the surgery. So another month went by. Mm. So I got pretty anxious during that entire period. I was seen weekly. They were checking everything, but they just couldn't do radiation until the incision was completely healed. So that was very nerve wracking. And so I was pretty anxious during that because I kept thinking there's a reason they start radiation soon after surgery to get mm. all the other little bits and pieces, you mm -hmm. know, eradicated. And then we weren't doing that. So in my mind, they're moving around, they're taking up residence somewhere else in my body. Um, so it was made me very anxious, but I finally did do radiation, which is um, very quick. Each session is very quick. I was surprised about that. I figured it would be longer. Um, they get more uncomfortable as you go through it's daily. Hmm. Um, one of the things that I did not know that you got with radiation, and I wanted to bring this up because everybody I talked to who I knew had had radiation said, oh yeah, yeah, that happens. You get uh, small little tattoos. And mm -hmm. it's the idea is so that they can line you up with the machine exactly uh. the same every single time that you come in. Um, but they are actual little teeny dots that are <laughs> permanent tattoos. And like, I just didn't know that people got tattooed when they got radiation. Very interesting. I didn't know that either. Um, <laughs> and, and so I'm, I'm assuming, though, that through your treatment, you know, we had mentioned that it was successful, right? I think so. Um, you know, I started um, the hormone treatment uh, aromatase inhibitors before I started radiation because it was more than the time period that they were comfortable with. Typically, ninety within ninety days, they, the outcome can change if you don't start radiation within ninety days. And I didn't start for one hundred and twenty days, but at ninety days, we started the aromatase inhibitors instead. Mm -hmm. So I've been taking those for quite a while now, several months now. So I think okay. that has helped too. Basically, the idea of that is that the cancer that is there, if there were any cells that were still there. They need mine was estrogen positive, so that needs estrogen to multiply and to grow. So we cut off its food supply by gotcha. using aromatase inhibitors. And, and, and so, so I feel comfortable with those. I think that any cells that are in there should not be able to grow by taking this um, medication. And and so what now? I mean, 
what, so what's I the follow see up? my oncologist every six months for the next three years. And I see my breast surgeon for the next three years, every six months. So every three months I have an appointment with someone related to breast cancer. Um, and then after that, it's just the oncologist for the next, until I've been there 10 years. Okay. Um, because of it being in my lymph system, it's 10 years. Typically it's five if it's more contained to the breast. So this is to follow up to see if you are developing a new cancer, if the cancer comes back. Is that kind of what they're doing in those meetings? Right. It's both. Um, they're checking for breast cancer to come back in that breast or other bre- of my other breast or that it's metastasized somewhere. And they've given me all of the warning signs to look out for and to report to them if I have any of those symptoms. And then they will you know, look to see if it has metastasized. And so it sounds like, you know, even though you've gone through the treatment and everything like that, and you're theoretically clean, I mean, you can't forget that you had cancer. So is this something that's always on your mind now? It is. I, I don't, I think of it every single day. Um, it's very visual that I had cancer um, than the surgery and it's still new. Mm-hmm. You know, I still think about it a lot. And I think as time goes by and everything's, you know, normal and all my appointments are normal and nothing's happening other than I just keep taking, you know, this pill, I'll probably think about it a lot less, but it's pretty new. So I, I actually think about it every day. Okay. I, I know that I have a 25% chance of it returning somewhere in my body. So, wow. so that now that you've been through all of this, this lengthy journey, what kind of advice would you give to people about breast cancer or words of wisdom maybe? Well, so I'm, I'm in the American Cancer Society camp of doing it every year because as soon as I had cancer in that mammogram, um, they went back and looked at the previous mammogram that was, you know, almost 18 months before that um, to see if they had missed something because it had spread to my lymph nodes and they wanted to make sure that they didn't miss something, you know, before, because I was, if I had switched every two years, I'm of the age of switching to every two years, uh, it would have been much more advanced and probably metastasized before it would have been caught in my case. And everybody's cancer is different. So I am supporter of the annual mammogram and don't be late with it (laughs) Mm -hmm. because if it hadn't been in my lymph system, I'd have a 6% chance of it returning. But because it was in my lymph system, I had an eight millimeter tumor in my lymph nodes. Mm. Um, I now have a 25% chance it will return. And given that I only had a 13% chance of getting cancer in the first place. Right. Oh, man. Well, you start Susan, to get a little bit anxious about that. You know, that's you know a lot to carry every day, and you know the journey being so fresh and stuff. I just really want to thank you for agreeing to, you know, come and talk about it because as healthcare professionals, as you know, unfortunately I know as well, it's so easy to make recommendations. It's so easy to tell people to get treatment, and we don't think of the person. Sometimes we think of the outcome, uh, and I, I really appreciate hearing your story you know, the things that you've gone through, you know, how you've managed it, uh, you know, and again, some of those, you know, words of wisdom and stuff like that. So thank you so much for, uh, you know, being on today and talking with us. Well, thank you, Mike. And I think the healthcare providers should realize, even though they see stuff like this every day, especially, you know, my cancer team is very good. They, they do recognize this, but it's an emotional diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And you have ups and downs the entire time that you're being treated in terms of, I feel like I'm okay, or I'm really devastated that I have to do this. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's an emotional diagnosis. It's yeah. not a black and white thing. Oh, you have cancer, get a treatment, you're done. Yeah, It's a very emotional diagnosis. Wow. 
Well, Susan, again, thank you so much and uh, best of luck with your journey. And I will continue to call you a cancer survivor, uh, mm-hmm. you know, from this time out. And uh, so I think we're going to have to wrap things up. Uh, so uh, from those of us at the Health Deli, um, you know, take your screening, uh, mm-hmm. you know, recommendations seriously. Don't put them off. Don't underestimate your underestimate your risk for, you know, a lot of these things. So uh, that's our public service announcement for the day. So All let's right. let's put up the sign. Uh, and get the heck out of here. Sounds good. Sounds Thanks, good. Susan. Yeah. Thank you, Susan. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for stopping by the Health Deli to sample some of our wares. We're open 24-7 on Facebook and Twitter at The Health Deli or visit thehealthdeli.com to send us a question or find any of our locations. Please come again. We will be regularly stocking the shelves with fresh content and new wellness specials. As always, we want to give a special thank you to Andrew Tingley and the crew at Ferris State University's television and digital media production program. Until next time, so long from the Health Deli, where the topics are tasty, the takes are fresh, and the discussion is free.